Welcome to another exciting edition of Near Mint Comic Radio, your local comic shop shrunk down, gamma radiated, sworn to protect. Hey, yeah, we can still do this. Sworn to protect the world that fears and hates it, and aired live every week, only on the Non-Productive Network, the only place that would have us. I'm your host, Frank, joined in studio, as always, by Pete. On Near Mint, we rank and review comics from best to worst. That's Mint, Near Mint, Good, Fair, and Poor to you newbies, and try to guide you what to read and what might be better to avoid. And boy, howdy, do I feel like this week we might be hitting all of those. Mint, oh, Near yeah. Mint, Good, Fair, and Poor. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited. Yeah. Uh, which one was it this week, House of X or Powers of X? Uh, this time uh, we're, we're back into our regular Near Mint rotation. Uh, that means no more X-Men books. No more Hickman X-Men books except for the one we're going to be reviewing. Oh, the Ten Men? The Ten Men. That's how we're going to pronounce it. Uh, yeah, we're going to be I don't believe he's given any guidance, so I'm going to go ahead and assume that it follows the last book that we read. Which would be which Powers, was Powers of, of Ten. So this and would be the Ten, ten Men. Men. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, of course, those of you who are loyal listeners and have liked, followed, and subscribed to this show know that we just spent the last 12 episodes covering... Uh, basically, the reboot of the X-Men in the Marvel Universe, Hickman's uh, House of X and Powers of X. Yes. So, uh, of course, we're not going to leave you stranded with no X-Men coverage. X-Men number one is what we're covering this week, and also a bunch of other reads, because, hey, there are other books out there, even other publishing companies. Wow. What? Yeah, but let's start with where we uh, left off. We are going to cover X-Men number one, which, of course, follows all the mutants of the world. Uh, going to Krakoa to seek sanctuary, yes. and the X Men being the I think the what the way the book referred to it was the wall between uh, mutants and the humanity that you know fears yeah. and hates it. No. All all mutants are X Men now. Yeah, and the X Men specifically are the fighting of X Men who are in this book uh, uh, routing the last traces of Orcris, a human or post human group of scientists made up of all these big smart things uh, who are using robots to hunt out mutants and um, they're you know part of them are made out of former AIM and Hydra and uh, also S.H.I.E.L.D. and, and Alpha Flight, I guess. Well a lot of scientists. people towards the uh, the top don't seem to be too crazy about the uh, Hydra yeah. scientists. And they, I think they identified only six of them. So, Orcris, uh, we haven't seen much of them lately in the Hickman books. Since the X-Men murdered them. Right. Well, as far as we knew. Let's be very specific about this, because uh, these are a couple of questions I have. Um, the X-Men are on the warpath against a bunch of humans that are on the warpath against them. And I think this book does a okay job. Uh, Hickman's run on... House of X and Powers of X, uh, Powers of Ten did a good job of leaving you constantly questioning who was right and who was wrong, and maybe that there is a there's no answer to that. Yeah, this is just a war with two sides of the war, and both being very determined that their future is at stake. Uh, this book, in my opinion, kind of starts off clearly putting the X Men on the aggressive and. I guess the wrong column of history. Hmm. Uh, I was not happy with it. Again, it starts off with the X-Men routing the last of Orcris, which immediately makes it seem a little iffy. Whenever you're you're in a position of power, and clearly the X-Men here with their immortality are in a position of power, hunting down the last remnants of the opposition, it's creepy. But then there's things that Storm says, like suicide bombs and serving the greater good are always the last refuge of a conquered people. Huh. Not a good look. No. No. I mean, but 
to be fair, we do clearly establish that they're also uh, capturing and experimenting on children. So that's the thing. And they're willing to turn themselves into gorillas <laughs> for, for some reason. Let's put a little... Let's put a little put a pin, in, pin the gorillas. in the gorillas because that's <laughs> awesome. But yes, so I'm reading. I'm, as it's one issue, right? So yeah. my mind is all over the place as I'm reading this. At first, I'm like, "This is really not." I don't like this look on the X Men. I do not like the X Men as being aggressors. Even though I kind of appreciate in in House of X and Powers of Ten, I really appreciated the the grace that brought us to that point. The 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 skill, the crafts. In this, I don't know. I was bludgeoned with the whole. Well, these are the last of these monsters. We're going to hunt them down to extension, complete with Magneto coming on from down high saying, "I, I, they will all fear me. I'm Magneto. I'm going to wipe out yeah. the humanity that resists." Which is T.M. Magneto. That's been oh, Magneto's yeah. thing for the longest time, and he's not changing anything. If anything, all the X Men are now like this. Could be any other book in the X Men's background where. Eventually, they decide Magneto's right, because this yeah. book pretty much says Magneto's right. It's not until, as you said, Pete, uh, we find them, they're, they're doing a rescue operation for a bunch of ca- captured mutant children, that I'm like, oh, okay, all right, this is, yeah. I, can, I can excuse this in my mind. I mean, I, I think it may not be the best uh, portrayal, but I think they, they, they do try to uh, paint the, uh, the Orcris characters as you know with an evil brush you know Mm. like this is the x-men trying to root out the end of a terrorist organization you know they're they're fighting back with sentinels which you know is essentially the same as putting on ss uniforms yeah these are these are x-men shorthand for bad guys yeah uh but i i'm not convinced that the x-men aren't also painted with that same brush in this uh, there, there's a very strong cult vibe. There's a, there's a colonial vibe. There's, um, yeah. There is a we are going to, we are your successors. We're taking you, taking over. We are better than you, and we're going to push you out. We're going to put like there's no the X Men are no longer trying to convince humanity. Hey, we can live side by side. We don't. We're not in competition anymore. X Men are convinced yeah. they are the future, and they're saying, well, you just have to learn to die. And we're only going to fight you if you fight back. But who wouldn't fight back against that? Uh, and I, I would, I'm going to posit that the voice of reason in this is um, our, our sentinel character whose name escapes me. Karima. Uh, Karima, thank you. Uh, who says, uh, your two races exist in a closed system. From, uh, for now, any action you take, any action they take, will have repercussions on the other. I actually do think that the the most generous reading of this, probably the intentional reading, is that these are two sides at war with each other, and there's no one who's going to come out of this with their hands clean. Mm. And that's fair, I think. That's a yeah. pretty realistic depiction of warfare. But man, heady read. Heady yeah. read. I, I feel like what we've lost in uh, going into this whole philosophy that Hickman's putting forward in this is the idea that the X-Men are the future of humanity and they're actively trying to wipe humanity out. Yeah. Like that shouldn't be the, the case. Agreed. I'm not, but it, it should be that the X-Men are the future of humanity. We are your children. You know, we are you, we are you in the future. Yeah. You would hope that I, the, the story makes a very interesting argument about whether or not that is true. 
uh, by def- by default, if you know, if one, there's a lot of analogies you can make with an X Men book that are kind yeah. of uncomfortable to play on, including the whole: are my, Am I born this way, or can I be genetically yeah. engineered to no longer be born that way? Fill in the blanks as you will. Um, and it's a lot of really heady questions about it. It's another interesting book, but let's yeah. let's put all that aside because there's a lot more that it can go to. But what is with the Summers family? Uh, if that's oh even a good wow! Way. They're, they're, we find that they're living on the moon now in course. their su- in the summer house. Yeah, they have a summer house on the moon. That's that's cute. That's yeah. really, that's really cute. Next door to where the uh, where the. Uh, the blue zone of the moon, yeah, where the, where the inhumans, inhumans, inhumans used to live, <laughs> adjacent to the blue, the blue. That's really like there's something funny and petty about that. Yeah. I like, uh, yeah. So we got we've got um, Cyclops, we have uh, Havoc, we have uh, the entire summer. Uh, Jean Grey, for some reason, Wolverine. All the, the yeah. Summers brothers, the Summers dad comes to visit. He now has his own <laughs> cell phone. He can call them whenever they want. It's part of the family plan. That, I, I would like to say. They, they give him the, uh, the the Krakoa teleportation portal flower uh-huh. or whatever. And I'm wondering if that's going to be a uh, plot point later on. Yeah. Because now, you know, you've got this portal on Krakoa or on, on the star, star, uh, star Jammer on a spaceship out in space that anyone can use to transport directly into Summer's hat home. Which links directly like, to Krakoa, yeah. You know, God forbid the uh, the the Star Jammer ever fall into enemy hands. Right, and, uh, you know, that but, would be... Yeah, uh, this has been well, well thought out. I, it's very cool to see this family dynamic and very weird. Yes. It's very weird. I'm still sitting here scratching my head about Vulcan. Uh, Vulcan yeah, is the, the third the, Summers brother. The one who was manning the grill. Yes. Yes. The one who was raised by the Shi'ar and eventually staged a coup to take over and become a uh, tyrannical dictator. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's just, you know, he still seems like he's got that little megamaniacal vibe going. And they're doing it for but laughs. But he's just grilling it. Yeah. They're, he's just grilling. They're doing it for laughs. It's that kind of redeeming the mutant villain thing that's been happening in a lot of these books so far. Yeah. I, in a way. I guess. You know, it's cool. It's, it's I have cool. To, I have to go back and re-research what happened when we last saw Vulcan. Because I thought he was dead. <laughs> well, dead. So, I mean, does that even matter anymore? Again, again on, I, I'm I mean, wondering if this is a, a cloned Vulcan that's been... Uh, Mind tweaked, shall we say? It's interesting because uh, if I th- if I remember correctly, if they had a backup of Vulcan, that wouldn't they wouldn't have had a chance to make a backup of him after he went to space. Yeah, after and, he yeah. went to space. So it could be a very and then it's all argue uh, arbitrary where this happens in the timeline of the known published X Men universe because. We really don't know. We kind of don't. It seems to have happened after all the events you've ever seen in a Marvel Comics book. Yeah. That doesn't take place in the future of Marvel's ever-present now. You know? So it's yeah. hard to say. But just on the surface of what this is, I don't want to get too caught up in the comics of it all to not acknowledge that Wolverine's having a beer with Cyclops' brother who's burning the food 
Jean Grey is asking her son to set the table. By the way, her son is Cable. It's yeah. it's ridiculously homey. And and Cable, the team Cable from recent X Men, yeah. things, is is asking Jean Grey, his not his mom, yes, uh, if he can trade ray guns with uh, one of the uh, Star Jammers. It's it's really it's such a trip. And I think it comes into place for most or a lot of X-Men readers where they are. Like, if you grew up with 90s X-Men, right, and you're reading these books, they feel like they are inspired by someone who grew up reading 90s X-Men. Which they were. Yeah. and But also uh, who is now currently an adult, which they are, and which we all are, theoretically. And, like, if... I don't... it, It feels... Like someone's fanfic of what the Summers family would be like, which it kind of is. <laughs> it's wonderful. I do enjoy. I did enjoy it. It was really cool. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I really like this book. I think it's fun. I don't know where it's going, uh, but there's plenty of places it could go, and it's definitely picking up on most of the threads that we had left off on House of X and Powers of Ten. Uh, which is what we asked for. And uh, it makes a lot of sense. This is a Hickman-backed run. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give this book a... I mean, I'll give it a near mint. I think it's uh, something to keep reading. I'm really interested to see where it's going. How about you, Pete? You, you, anything that um, you would like to add? Um, not much. Uh, Magneto was right. I guess. Yeah, and he's a, he's that a star. That seems to be the popular opinion. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gregor is alive. I didn't know who Dr. Gregor is. Dr. Gregor was the uh, the woman oh, no, that was no. in charge of the Orcus project. Oh, 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 That I'm we sorry. assumed blew up. I, I was thinking the doctor that was treating the mutant children who were in Oh, there. that's Dr. Know. Reyes. Yes, yeah. and I don't know who that is. A lot of just doctor introductions. Yeah, doctor, doctor. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, uh, I, I'm, and I'm surprised that apparently the, uh, the Master Mold Forge was not destroyed. Yeah, you'd think you would uh, finish that job. space station wasn't completely... There was one little line where they were like, well, without you, um, Dr. Simeon, I don't remember the name Dr. of the... Dr. Gregor? The guy, no, the, oh. the one who was in charge of the Orcus the, Project. The, guy, the blind guy. Yeah. Uh, but there was a line that says, well, you know, if you, were, if you had been here, all would have been lost. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I thought we kind of figured out that it, it's never lynched pinned on one person. But whatever, I'll forgive that. Um, oh, we didn't mention, we didn't mention, but we didn't go into it. Uh, the worker scientists turn themselves into apes, as you do. Yes, we did promise that we would go yeah, back to that. I love it. That was. I don't I, know what the plan was. They, they try. They they. It, it, he was like spouting off about some kind of evolutionary thing. Yeah. That didn't make any darn sense to me. Nope. It's like okay, well, if the X Men are going to try to evolve us, it, we'll go one step further down on the. Uh, we have to be savage before we fight them. Man, it, it was what? just fun. It was, okay. it was good old-fashioned comic fun. There's a monkey scientist. And um, I like Magneto's explanation that, you know, I just demonstrated I was superior and they turned on themselves. Um, you know what? It's a good kickoff. I'm, I'm interested. I'll give it a near mint. All right. Did you read anything else this week, Frank? I did. You did? So, so uh, let's, let's keep it Marvel for a bit. Uh, there was a big uh, uh, hullabaloo. Wow. I can't believe I even stuttered for that. A big hullabaloo in the comics world where J.J. Uh, Abrams uh, was going to sign up on and do something involving Spider-Man. And mm-hmm. we discovered that's doing a Spider-Man book with his son. 
that has nothing to do with Spider-Man Four. Toby Maguire's Spider-Man Four. If you recall, go oh, back yeah. to the Twitter. People were thinking, "Oh no," because I think the first image it was like a countdown: four, three, two, one, and the yeah. first thing was a spider was a and a four. And people were like, oh, "Spider-Man's in the Fantastic Four. No, it's going to be Toby Maguire's Spider-Man. Spider-Man it's going to be what was what was going to happen in the uh, Toby Maguire. Right? Nope, it was none of those things. It was a countdown, and we got uh, this version of Spider-Man, a which, bad robot Spider-Man, <laughs> effectively. Uh, oh, which wait, no. is the story, and you, you've read the first issue. I have. The second issue just came out. Uh, this is, uh, you know, spoiler alert, this is the story of Ben Parker, Peter and Mary Jane's son, uh, who decides to pick up the mantle, sort of, of Spider-Man uh, after um, discovering his father's secret, uh, mm-hmm. that he used to be Spider-Man. So... This and is he's, a, he's apparently inherited his power, the, his father's powers, right? Right, yeah. So basically what we've established in the first two issues of the story, just to give people an idea of whether they want to read it along, along, it's, you know, either an alternate future or a alternate universe entirely, hopefully the latter, uh, because we find that the story begins with Peter Parker in fighting this thing called, I think, Cadaverous, this robotic yeah, I believe monster that was they... with a bunch of robotic spawn, uh, techno-organic, whatever. Yeah. Um, and we don't know much about this thing yet. And in this really brutal fight with this... Uh, and Spider-Man is fighting a bad robot. Yeah, effectively. And uh, in this battle, in the very beginning of the first issue, it, it ends with Mary Jane dying. Uh, and this inspires Spider-Man, inspires? Maybe not. This breaks Spider-Man and causes him to hang up his costume and retire to take care of his infant son. Uh, The story takes place a couple of years later, 13 years, 15, I don't know, whatever. Uh, And his uh, son, Ben Parker, is uh, now in high school, and he is um, sort of a little upset with his father, who's an absentee dad. Uh, Peter is missing an arm. From the from yeah. the battle uh, of the uh, with uh, Cadaverous that and um, you know and Mary, they're living with Aunt May still because of course they are. Um, they somehow found a way to make Aunt May older and still feel like it's an appropriate timeline. Yeah, and the the story is really Ben coming to terms with who his dad is and the legacy of uh, of what a spider of what Spider Man is. And being weird and being different because he's, he finds that he is born with these abilities and he, he suddenly he has uh, manifested these abilities in high school and he's getting into trouble and there's a bunch of things like that. So it's interesting, just a very blanket review. It's a very, it's interesting read, but there's a couple weird things about it that, I, that just hit me right off the bat. Mary Jane fridged, right? Arguably. Yeah. But hard to argue it. I mean, what propels the plot is her death and that how that affects Peter and eventually affects Ben. I, I think there's a little bit more baggage with the fridge terminology than I think this story necessarily deserves. Maybe, yeah. It's a little early to I mean, just she, quite say that. If she's in the fridge, she's in there with Uncle Ben. Yeah, that's you know, fair. I, I think killing a character off to give another character motivation is a mainstay in storytelling yeah. for better or worse. Um, I think there are lots of really complicated reasons where it's useful and where it isn't, uh, where it's appropriate, where it isn't. I, I always think that if the character is a, you know, a Ben, the difference between uncle Ben is that he kind of only was created for this moment very early in the run, as opposed to a character that just, 
sort of is a character people like who only seems to be used in this bur- in this story to propel Ben into his life of whatever is going to end up happening. It's weird, is what I'm saying. I'm not going to go out any further than that. Yeah. It just is. It it's sort of unsatisfying, but I get it. I don't know. I'm not good enough to come up with a solution to how do we motivate our superheroes. We may come up with this later in this podcast because there's a couple other books we have to read. <laughs> and this one, it just felt odd. Uh, aside from that, the deconstruction of superheroes, which is a big deal now, as again, readers have become, are getting older, and I'm not saying that comics have only existed in the last 20, 30 years, but... If you your mainstay was in the eighties and the nineties, you are now an adult. You may have be, you may have children, and you're wondering. You're maybe even questioning your relationship with your father. You're like there's a lot of baggage built in with your audience yeah. maturing, and these characters getting to the point where it's not just like these things have been around for centuries. Like like uh, I don't know Tarzan. These things have been around for less than a century, just long enough to be maybe this is a little too long, right? It's just long enough to some characters. You're yeah. like, ah, oh, I don't know. Your your origin is World War One. How do we keep making this fresh? Other yeah. than you know, you know, Captain America origin, World War Two, <laughs> put him in the ice. That's that is a wonderful thing that gave that character so much more longevity. But it's hard. It's difficult. And you've you want there's this urge to want to make these characters get married and have kids and move on, and then to reset the clock. And then to question whether or not they were ever good people to begin with. You see this in the Joker movie that's out. You see this in a million different Batman movies. You've seen this in Man of Steel where Pa Kent's like, eh, maybe you should let kids drown. And here you see it with Peter Parker who's like, sometimes you can't save people. Yeah, it makes people It makes things worse when you try to put yourself out there. Some <sighs> interesting questions. I don't know if this one deals oh, with yeah? it in an interesting way. One thing you didn't focus on, I don't think, that I think provides a very interesting perspective on this, is that this is being written by J.J. Abrams and his son. So you're getting the father-son perspective from both ends yeah. of the pen, if you will. Yeah, I, I, that, there is something to this. It's too early to tell with J.J. and Henry Abrams' book whether this deals with these issues in a, in a way that makes it worthwhile. Uh, I, I don't know. It's two issues in, and all I could do is I'm reading. There's a, there's a manic pixie dream girl in this as well. There's a girl <laughs> that, like, crushes on, not really crushes on Ben, Ben crushes on her in detention, and she's all about, like, justice, and she wants to wear a costume and go out there and tag buildings, her version of fighting crime, and finds out Spider-Man is, in, well, Ben that is, in fact, uh, is Spider-Man's son. And I'm like, is this a manic pixie tree girl? Or is this, or is this, am I just, do I have a chip on my shoulder? Am I reading too much <laughs> into this? It's way early to tell. I'm going to have to say, folks out there, let this run finish. Wrap this up at least to the first arc. Marvel seems to be thinking it because I see almost no press about this. Like, mm-hmm. no one is talking about it. I don't see anyone talking about it on Twitter. I don't see anyone talking about it anywhere. <laughs> Maybe let this be one complete story and then wait for our review and then give it a shot. Yeah. Because it's... Let this settle with people. I think, yeah. 
I think let this settle is a good one. Uh, the closest I could give that is a good. Yeah. Doesn't deserve a balance. Let this like, settle. Don't don't send Ben hurtling back in time and joining the champions. Oh. Don't do that. So it's really yeah, it's difficult dealing with these legacy characters, these these characters that have been around for almost a hundred years. Yeah, uh, that people want to see grow, but also want to see say the same. It, it's 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 a task. Hickman did an interesting take on it, and I, I appreciate it even more after reading the Spider-Man book. But wait, yeah. just you wait, because I read another book. Well, before you get into that, I just okay. want to point out you, your point with legacy characters. We're about to find out how that uh, plays out for DC in a big way. Oh? Because DC, uh, I believe starting next year, 2020, is supposedly relaunching... Most of their titles with new uh, characters. Oh, really? As in, uh, what was it? Jonathan uh, Kent, Superboy, is okay. going to be the new Superman. All right. And we're going to be getting a whole bunch of legacy characters taking on the mantles. Well, I guess... Being the new Superman, the new Wonder Woman. It's interesting that you bring up DC, because my other book is from DC, and I think it may be the precursor for this happening. Tales from the Dark Multiverse, number one, Batman Nightfall. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, that's a lot of title. Yeah. So let's give you a little background. This is a, effectively, it's an Elseworlds book, pretty much. Okay. Um, This is part of the Dark Multiverse storyline that That was introduced with the uh, the metal crossover. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that there is a thin layer that separates our regular <laughs> multiverse but from another multiverse that's way darker, dude. That's the only way I can explain yeah. it. It's like the metal version of, no, for serious, this is dark. Um, like grim dark universe. Alternate universes that the uh, the universe like rejected. They were half-formed. It, it, it's very weird. I, and if I remember correctly, the explanation for what the ult- dark multiverse was. So this book specifically focuses on Nightfall, that famous storyline that I, be- I believe begins for the most part. Uh, it involves Bane breaking Batman's back, Batman yeah. uh, giving up the mantle to Azrael, who uh, is Batman for a while and is a real jerk about it, a murderous <laughs> jerk about it, and then Batman having to fight back. And in our world, our universe, Batman succeeds. He gets the, the throne back from from Azrael, John Paul Sartre, I can't remember his name. John Paul uh, uh, Gosselier, I think. something. Yeah, sure, that sounds right. Um, <laughs> and uh, he gets it, yeah, he gets the title back. In this one, it's ridiculous. Azrael, it's always the same move with Batman's back arching and something going into it. Oh, good. Uh, in this case, Azrael, um, I guess, wins the fight, stabs him in the back, and uh, uh, presumably, at the start of the story, kills Batman and takes over as Saint Batman. Of course. Who, who uh, is the last thing standing, keeping Gotham going because the world has collapsed. Because in these universes, it's never just one thing changes and most things are the, are the same. It's one thing changes and then the entire universe goes right off the rails and suddenly we're in Victoria, England. Uh, Victoria, England? Victorian, Victorian is what it meant, yeah. but it doesn't matter. So anyways, I yeah. think that is a, uh, a property of these dark multiverse worlds, that they're continually in a state of ending. Good. It's like they're, they're temporary universes that are destined to and be I, destroyed. I appreciate this. I like, what I really like about this is the, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Pete, 
the context for what these stories are doing, where we have a character who is uh, watching everything from uh, a like a, a, a third person perspective, um, who is known as the Watcher Guy. <laughs> no, he has a different name. Oh, Figonaut? Tempest Figonaut. Fuginaut. I read that really uh, badly. Okay. I get it now. Oh, so God. I read the last name first, and then I mispronounced it. Then I read the first name. Then I was like, oh, wait, I read that completely so wrong. So it's, it's, it's a play on words yeah. combining Tempest Fugit, Time Flies, with, the, with a Huguenot. Uh, uh, or maybe an astronaut, okay. because he's in space. So anyways, it's a spacely being who is watching the universes, and he says a crisis is coming, perhaps the greatest yet. And if the multiverses survive, survive it must be stronger. So the, the fiction here is that this character is looking through the multiverse, the dark multiverse, to see if there's some edgelord heroes out there that he could recruit for Crisis on Infinite Dark Worlds, which I guess is what's going to bring DC into the 2020 relaunch. The way I said that was really bad, but it's fun. I think it's a Mm -hmm. fun concept. I think it's a cool idea. You Obviously, you're going back to the well again. I mean, going back to the well is might as well be the subtitle to this book with Batman's arched back on every 10th page. Something breaks his back, stabs him in the back. He just is yawning in a very weird way. <laughs> it's always that Bane bar- arch that happens, but in different for different reasons. Um, if you're going to go back to the well, you might as well have a little bit of like old school Kirby fun with it. And they, I'm cool with that. I'm very cool. So we're setting up another crisis. We're, they're setting up another crisis, yes. You know, it's amusing. I, I, I recently read... Uh, Trying to remember if this was the in Superman or uh, or in the other Legion setup that they just did, but you've got the Legion of Superheroes coming back to the 21st century. Oh, okay. And being amazed at uh, how interesting it was to live in the 21st century. All these crises happening <laughs> one after another, one after another. Yeah, daily crisis. Uh, so in this story, uh, it's taken, uh, I think, 30 years after uh, Azrael took over as St. Batman uh, and has been ruling Gotham with an iron fist uh, or maybe like with, a cool gauntlet with knives in it. Yeah, I was going to um, say like ra- with a razor gauntlet. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, so he's got a bunch of like vaguely Catholic uh, henchmen who are around there doing vaguely Catholic things. Um, it's uh, it's the uh, Order of Saint Dumas, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, effectively. Uh, and he's got characters like the Cardinal and the Torchbearer and a oh, bunch boy. of bunch of stuff. So uh, yeah, there there's some interesting world building that comes in here. This is the paragraph that I see most often people highlight. It's the one I was most interested in. Um, they're getting news, right? They're her, his Alfred, who is um, uh, his wife, who Madeline. Um, who may be a character for all I know, but I did not do any okay. research. Sorry about that. Uh, the is referring to the the following uh, info dump. News outside Gotham is not good. The Woodrue pandemic is spreading. People are dumping upwards of two thousand petrified bodies a day into the Lazarus pits. Woodrue is uh, is yeah. the Floronic man, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, into the, so the dumping bodies into the petrified petrified bodies into the Lazarus pits. The pits power is depleted, though, and the victims are coming back only half resurrected. Ooh. And after the parasite cataclysm in Metropolis two years ago, the pressure is mounting for Gotham too. And then he cuts her off to say, "Hey, I'm only worried about Gotham." So in this world, the universe has gone to well, the world has gone to hell, and um, Gotham is probably the best option out there, but still terrible. How inverted? Yeah, kind of, uh, but still terrible. Yes, yeah. uh, it, it's 
it's fun world building at first. I'm I'm in this. This book has as I'm reading this book, the grading moves up and down in my head. At first, I'm like, okay, cool. This is an interesting concept. Give me this Elseworlds. Then I'm reading about this world building. Am I really interested? Okay, cool. No problem. Yeah, I'm into this. Oh wait, there's a scene where Azrael uh, wants to get Bruce to admit that he was wrong and that he, that Azrael was the rightful successor to the Batman. He's the only one that's saving this world. And I'm like, Bruce, how is I th- guess, what is he doing a Yorick with his skull? The reveal again, full spoilers that we we should know that all these are going to be spoiled. We're reviewing these books. Bruce is a severed head and a torso connected to this giant apparatus positioned at the top of Wayne Tower so he could see Gotham that he goes to once a year, apparently severs a limb a year, uh, which doesn't ma- mathematically doesn't really work well, yeah, out. Well, yeah, you rip off every, you know, all 30 of his limbs. Sure. And, uh, yeah, he just goes there once a year to try to get Bruce to say, yeah, I'm a good Batman, right? I'm keeping the world alive. And Bruce is all like, oh, Bruce, no. It's so comical and so dark edgelordy that it's really hard, even with my complete buy-in, to keep going. But I did. Oh, I kept reading because it's it's it is what it is. This so is, is that a- reveal that that Bruce is the Tempest Fugitive? No, no, okay. it is not. Oh, okay. I, I he, see what you said. He yeah. is uh, literally just a severed head and a torso attached to a machine. So second dude watching. Yes, this guy is also watching, but the other guy was watching in space as a cosmic deity. Oh, okay. And this guy's watching. So in he's his not. A mi- he's not really a mystery. Yeah. So all right, as this the story goes on, uh, we 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 find out that there is a group of people who are trying to uh, raid Gotham to get rid of Saint Batman because, as you do. Uh, led by uh, the uh, son of Bane, who naturally has venom coursing through his veins because his father did too much venom. Yeah. And it affected him genetically somehow. Sure. Uh, also, Azrael, St. Batman, is also hooked up venom. He also uses venom. Well, he would have he, to. Yeah. So lots of cool things are happening. Uh, basically, the, there's, a, there's one aspect of the story is a rescue operation to get Bruce. Because Bruce, as if Bruce takes up the mantle of Batman again, Severed Head and Torso Bruce takes up the mantle of Batman again, it will inspire people to rise up against Azrael, and Gotham will be a shining beacon to save the world. Maybe they don't know he's just a Severed Head no, and Torso. No, they knew. Oh, okay. <laughs> they knew. This was part of the plan. Uh, Bane is, uh, or son of Bane, whose name I don't really remember, is helped by the woman who helped Bruce walk again in the original continuity, uh, whose name I also don't remember. I'm going to say Dave. Dave sure. Baneson. Dave Baneson is helped <laughs> by Lady Dane. Lady Shiva. Shiva is her name. Uh, so yeah, they... Um, they eventually do succeed in their rescue operation. I don't usually do play-by-plays, but this is so crazy. They do, and they bring Torso. They somehow manage to connect his head to his torso, so he's a little less ridiculous looking. But he's in the if sewer. You separated the, tor- the head from the torso. Why keep the torso? I don't... <laughs> It's a load-bearing torso. <laughs> Anyways, they bring him down into the sewers. They're escaping. In, in mid-escape, Bruce is like, what? you don't need me. I'm not. I'm just the head of the torso. <laughs> yeah. I think he literally says that. And they're like, no, you're going to be an inspiration. Also, I have the ability to help you. If you will take up the mantle, uh, if you will become the Batman this city needs, I could give you back your body. And there's like this glowing orb of something. And at this moment, I'm like, why would he say no? 
What what possible? Where's the drama in this? He why would he say no? He's like, no, nah, leave me as a head and a torso. Yeah. He's like, even if he is too tra- traumatized to become Batman again, which is reasonable, right? Thirty years of trauma in this. Why would he say, you know, but just leave me in the sewer without a body? Take the body and then say, I can't. I'm not up to the challenge of being Batman. It feels like this doesn't seem like it's some magical wish. It's just very weird. I could say probably the argument would be uh, trying to see if Bruce has finally been broken. And if he doesn't think he's even worthy of continuing to sure. live. Sure, I could kind of see why they would maybe ask, but I don't... I think I don't, it's weak, but I, I don't know why, why we as see. readers were reading it and it's going like, oh, will he say yes? Like, well, other than that, you're leaving that torso in the sewer. Keep yeah. it going. So they eventually make it back to uh, Wayne Manor, which is now Dumas Castle or something. Sure. Uh, and uh, they're... they're Son of Bane and Shiva are going to fight uh, Azrael and his cronies, God, and they're like, oh, let's tell do me this. they're going to put Bruce's brain into Killer Croc's body. Oh, it would have, would that it was that cool. Instead, uh, they're, as they're about to fight off, they're like, haha, the two of you? That's not nearly enough people to fight me. If you had one more, maybe. And then he's like, ah, but we do have one more. They have me. And Bruce is in a very, like, spawnish Batman suit. Uh, in the ceiling, which is ridiculous, they're in Bruce Manor, and he decided, like, no, I need to be, guys, guys, I need to be on the ceiling. I just have a thing. I've been cooped up for 30 years, having my limbs removed. I need to be on the ceiling for this. It it really does bring the whole look together. So he's on the ceiling, which is all stalactite or stalagmite you be the judge. And uh, he's there, and then uh, Azrael loses his crap. He screams, slaughter them all, and they start to fight. So this is what, this is one... There, the art is so crammed in this book that you can't even see what's happening. At one point, I believe Azrael puts a sonic disruptor on Bane's head, and that's what makes him let him go. But I don't, you don't really know because the conflict is so like mixed up. Uh, and then he, this is just literally the entirety of the explanation for what happens next. Batman lunges down to attack people. He kind of gets pixelated and is surrounded by bats. Mm -hmm. And he says, one panel, one slither of a panel, these nanobats, they give me flight and reach I never had before. What the hell is a nanobat? Apparently, it's what Bruce's body is made up of now or partially made up of. Nanobats. These things are huge, by the way. They're bat-sized. So why nano? Doesn't matter. They absorb the genetic profile of everyone they touch. So it's not really killing, is it? You can all live on through me. So this new Batman is gr- grim darker than the grim darkiest dark that has ever happened. He's the grim darkiest knight. Uh, he is killing people and he is absorbing them somehow with nanobats that are in fact as big as regular bats. There's more things that happen Somebody loses an arm, and what was his Bane Junior? Dave Baneson. Dave Baneson does eventually get his time in the sun. More people have their backs broken. Oh, of course. Happy to have, and back break a palooza. And yeah, and then the end where everyone is defeated. um, Batman tells them that uh, he it's too late to be the shining beacon for Gotham and the world because. He uh, the world is broken, so he then uses his nanobats, possibly, uh, or maybe a shotgun that we don't actually see to really disassemble his two allies, Shiva and 
David Bainson, uh, because he's the now he's the meanest, the broken Batman is no, what they call th- him. But he's making them immortal; they will live on through him. Sure, makes sense. And it ends with uh, our Watcher character, who I, I can't even bother. Tempest Fugit uh, is saying, "Oh, this place is too messed up even for me." Oh. <laughs> And he just leaves. Next issue is the death of Superman. I was okay. I was really hoping that he would turn around and say, "Oh no, not Edge Lordy enough." Th- that would be awesome. So yeah, I need somebody darker. We're talking about legacy characters and and revisiting the well. You've got on the one hand, you've got Hickman with X Men, yeah. who's like thinking about these characters and what they mean and what their powers are and what what their history signi- signifies and all that. And then you've got this end of the spectrum, which is not nearly the same. This is an, a single issue in a book that I would argue is supposed to be fun, right? And you read it, and you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> None of these characters. Or even, even Spider-Man with, with, with Peter going, listen, just let, let, the, let the bus kids drown. Like it, <laughs> it's a, it's, there's a, almost a fundamental lack of understanding of, where the char- of who the character is. Yeah. That makes the revisiting these stories less fun, less interesting. But if they're going to go through all the worst, most trite stories in the Dark Multiverse, like Death of Superman is next, which I am sick of. Okay, go for it. Have fun. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I'm really mixed up on this one. I was originally near mint. Then I went to good. And then I ended up like, oh, this is poor. But I was like, no, no, no. We have a fair for a reason. This clearly should be a fair. Wow, this a is rare fair. This is a fair. Yeah, there's too much, too much not happening in this book. Nanobats, what are they? <laughs> Magnets. Ah, oh. all right. Let's let's pull ourselves okay. out of this. It's election season. Let's do our last last series of reviews. <laughs> I was gonna say. Let, so I read also a DC book. Surprisingly enough, uh, Superman smashes the clan. Oh, uh, this is a, a bit of a lighter note. Sure, yeah, Weirdly. no, it counts. Uh, written by uh, Jean Luen Yang. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh-huh. I am. And it's based on the clan of the Flaming The Cross, radio play. The, the, uh, uh, from the old Adventures of Superman radio serials. That's interesting. So they adapted it to a comic. Yeah, and, and adapted by a, uh, I believe, first-generation Chinese-American. That's awesome. If uh, for those of you not familiar with the radio show, this story was essentially Superman taking on a Ku Klux Klan analog, <laughs> legally distinct yes. from the Ku Klux Klan, without the Klan of the Fiery Cross, right? Who, who was yeah? And this was this all this was originally aired in 1946, so they were actually still a lot more uh, legit yeah, legit more, than they have than they are now, certainly. But this is actually a, a very interesting. Story from the perspective of a young first-generation Chinese immigrant girl, and it, it's it's actually really good. It's set in 1946, so it starts off with Superman uh, beating up a Nazi, and this is from a time in Superman's career before he realized he could fly. Oh yeah, all right, uh, and before he knew what kryptonite was. It features his first encounter with kryptonite. Is that true? I think this play... The, the, the radio radio play, was, radio play, I don't know if it was this one, but the radio, a, yeah. uh, the radio serials were the first uh, 
media that yeah. introduced Superman's ability to fly and kryptonite. And for well, the kryptonite so that the the performers can get a week off. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was it. It was like, oh, he's too tired because of kryptonite. <laughs> um, interesting. But a, a big part of this is the story of this uh, Chinese family, Chinese American family, that uh, moves from Chinatown, Metropolis Chinatown, to Metropolis proper, and then trying to integrate into the society. They're the first Chinese fa- American family to move into the neighborhood. And this touches off conflicts with the uh, now local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. I love this period of Superman where he's beating up on slumlords and and yeah. racists. Yeah. All right. It's, awesome. Uh, yeah. It's very interesting in the way it tackles the subject of assimilation and maintaining your own cultural identity. Uh, the, the, the girl and her brother – have very different points of view on it. He's trying to assimilate a lot more. She misses Chinatown and the feeling of belonging. And it's it, they do a very good job of keeping it even-handed. N- neither one is shown as correct. Mm-hmm. It's very much a, you know, what's right for you kind of thing. Cool. It's it's an excellent book. Uh, it's well, the first part it? of three. Oh, really? So there's oh. there's going to be three of these coming out soon. Uh, I I've got to give it a mint. It's great. Very nice. Uh, just a little final teaser for a, a political book as we wrap up this episode. The mask is back. Yes, that Jim Carrey movie turned into a comic book. Wait, no, we got that wrong. That comic book turned into a Jim Carrey movie. Uh, is back at Dark Horse Comics. Um, for those of you who only know it from the movie, the mask has always been pretty graphic and bloody and <laughs> r- really over the top. And this book is no different. So the mask, I pledge allegiance to the mask. Oh boy. Uh, first issue just came out. And yes, it is about a mask that wants to make America green again. Uh, green? Really, yeah, green. I, is, I'm assuming this is not environmentalism. No. Uh, it is bloody as hell, very weird, way too early to tell, and there is it's deep within the Max uh, mythos. So if you are a reader of the Max, you're probably very excited about this. If you are not, maybe a little hard to get your foot in the door in this book. If all you've ever watched is the uh, animated series. Yeah, or the animated <laughs> series, right, right, or the movie. Uh, but it's it's interesting, and it's out on shelves now. Hey, you know what else was interesting, we hope? This episode of Near Mint. If you enjoyed it, please like, follow, and subscribe so you get the latest in the podcatcher of your choice, and leave us a good review. We need more reviews. We're going to start reading them out loud on the internet uh, to your employer. That's That was a weird, weird threat. Yeah. I don't think we should have ended with that. Oh, well, we did. Probably not. Do those things. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.